the James Suckling podcast. Wine ratings, reports, interviews and more. Hello. Hi. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Nice to meet you. What's your current proportion between Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grapes? And do you see that changing? I mean, you you're getting more excited about Chardonnay. We've been we're definitely, a lot of we're definitely, yeah, we're definitely, um, we're bullish on Chardonnay. We think Chardonnay is um, ideally suited for, uh, for, especially for the Dundee Hills. Um, currently, we only have Chardonnay planted in the Dundee Hills. We really believe in three things for Chardonnay that really make um, our this style of Chardonnay that we want and the quality that we want. And we're really only interested in planting Chardonnay and high elevation um, on Jory soils, which are our weathered basalt soils, and using Dijon clones, which are early ripening clones of Chardonnay. And we found that if we have those three factors, we can consistently make um, Chardonnay that's ripe, that has great tension, great fruit flavor, great texture, um, and ageability. And so that's, um, so yeah, so Chardonnay is still, it's still a very important piece for us, but in percentage wise, it's probably only 25% of what we, of what we grow and what we make that, that that's changed. Um, like, slightly because we use you know chardonnay and pinot noir in a, just about equal proportions in our sparkling program so um so yeah we're making only about 25 percent of chardonnay compared to still wine pinot but we still have a, quite a bit of chardonnay that goes into sparkling and we think it's amazing in sparkling wine and when did you start making the sparkling because i haven't tasted that many sparklings from oregon yeah only in 2014 and um, and we made the conscious decision to age it longer than a lot of people in Tourage. So, you know, we were, you know, about three and a half years aged um, in Tourage and bottle um, and then another year under cork before we release it. So from vintage to when we from the vintage we harvest it to the vintage we release it, our, our multi vintage or non vintage wine. We call it multi-vintage because there's no such thing as a non-vintage. Everything comes from somewhere, <laughs> um, but we call it multi-vintage. So, so it's realistically five years from the time it was harvested to the time it goes gets into the consumer's hand. And that's just the start. We have vintage wines that are coming out and a Blanc de Blanc and all of those. And those are aged longer. Those are aged, you know, those will be six or seven years from the vintage date till when they're released to the public. Do you, um, do you pick the Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grapes earlier for your sparklings? And do you think there's potential for traditional method sparkling wine in Oregon? Oh, there's, there's more than just potential. There's like documented success mm -hmm. um, there. And yeah, you, you have to um, pick it um, uh, at a lower um, maturity and uh, because of the, um, because to put it through a secondary fermentation in bottle, you can't have the alcohol that you would with a still wine. It's, it's literally impossible. So if you were to try to, you know, and that's why like in champagne and um, they were successful in, in, I mean, there's a lot of reasons they were success. Um, they've done a lot of things, right. But um, you can't do, you can't have um, potential alcohol above, 
you know, 11 or closing in on 12% before you do the secondary fermentation in, in bottle. It, it just, it literally won't happen. Um, so, so yeah, so there's, um, there's, you, you have to harvest it early. And I mean, honestly too, in those, in a sparkling wine, you want it to have tension and you want it to have that energy and acid that's don't want um, too much of that ripe fruit profile either yeah and and you're lucky if you if you get like good ripe fruit flavors in um low alcohol um or low you know essentially low sugar um uh, uh fruit and i think you can do that when you have um higher elevation sites because we have long hang time even for for sparkling grapes i would love to ask you about your different vineyards and how they're different um so we've tasted them some of them really stood out, um, like the Jerusalem Hill one mm-hmm. in the early Amity. Uh, how do the different vineyards differ in terms of soil aspect, elevation? And do you think as a whole, there are large regional differences between the ABA, so say Eola Amity uh, versus Dundee Hills? Um, and why is that? Yeah, there's, um, there's absolutely differences. Um, our Jerusalem Hill is our only site currently uh, producing in the Ola Amity Hills. And um, it's on woodburn soils, which are um, alluvial soils that came down from the last ice age about 17,000 years ago. And they were essentially like how we like to jokingly refer to it. We just took the best soils from Washington and Idaho and they came down here during, you know, um, an ancient flood basically. Um, they're very vigorous soils, so they brought a lot of nutrients and a lot of um, a, and, and a lot of like kind of clays, water holding capacity, like things like that that are very unique um, and different compared to anywhere else that we have um, soils. So if you kind of look at the Willamette Valley, you look at kind of I look at like the Dundee Hills, and and I'm, I have to say I'm biased because we're 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 in the Dundee Hills. Um, where the winery is and where a lot of our vineyards but i kind of look at the dundee hills and i look towards the west side of the dundee hills you have the willikensee soils which are essentially marine sedimentary soils that's the the old bottom of the ocean the pacific ocean you know floor um and then you look at um the dundee hills or the Shahala mountains anything above four or five hundred feet in elevation it generally has uh, jory soils, which are the weathered basalt soils, those were actually formed underneath the ocean through um, eruptions of lava, and then they kind of got pushed up when the plates converged and formed the Cascade Mountains. But when those kind of, you know, so so interesting thing about Willamette Valley is like our volcanic soils are at our highest elevations, right. but there's there's no volcanoes above us. So it's because those all formed at the bottom of the ocean and then they got pushed up when plates collided or collided. And, and that, that makes it it, a a unique thing where we have high elevation and volcanic soils at the same time. Usually volcanic soils are generally in the bottom of valleys because that's the way lava flows downhill. (laughs) Um, uh, But then you have this whole other event, which was the ice age that formed like these glacial lakes and then they would melt and then they would form floods and that form formed some of our valleys and our Columbia river and, and the Willamette to some degrees, the uh, uh, river. And those came out towards 
like Salem, which is like towards the Eli Amity Hills and deposited those um, different kinds of soils. So, so the thing that makes the Willamette Valley, I think so unique is there was like over, there was something that happened basically, let's call it 15,000 years ago and something that happened 15 million years ago. And, you know, the volcanic happenings happened millions of years ago and the the other, the more recent soils like that are in the Olamity Hills and those kind of soils happened in the thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. Um, but those, all those things, the soil and because, um, because there's different, the Jory soils in the Willamette Valley tend to happen at higher elevations because of the uplift, um, that creates really unique terroir and micro and and then on top of that there's different microclimates that are associated associated with those things as well so there's a lot of differences and jerusalem hill for us has our most savory and kind of spicy and kind of almost like leather and umami kind of driven wines um and then you know um when we get when we get grapes in the in the dundee hills pinot noir it tends to be very um like uh fresh fresh fruited so like never any jammy kind of characters so like raspberries fresh off the vine or strawberries and things like that and it has a textural element that i always describe as like suede it's like firm like leather smooth like velvet so it's not just it's just not not just soft you know like you can have some pinot noirs that are just kind of soft but these have like this like silky velvety texture but there's a weight behind them that uplifts them and gives them ageability and depth and character and stuff um i think that's, so, a, that's a combination of the volcanic soils and the higher elevation of your vineyards in dundee hills for sure and then when you and then you can even break it down even further that when you know when they're on east facing slopes they they tend to have like almost even more of a um, silky kind of nature when they're on southern facing slopes, they almost feel like the mouthfeel of the wine almost feels like a sphere where it coats the entire entirety of your mouth. We have a vineyard called Cote Sud that whether it's Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, when you put the wine in your mouth, it coats the entire like the entire part of your mouth. It feels like a sphere inside. Mm, interesting. And, and about Pinot Noir. Why do you think it's always been the focus in Oregon compared to Chardonnay? Because the terroir is, is suited for both. Um, and how would you describe the personality or the nature of Oregon Pinot Noir compared to, say, Sonoma Coast or even Burgundy? So I, uh, for, the first, for the first part of that, I think um, Pinot Noir found success earlier than Chardonnay because people um when the first pioneers came here and planted they planted they planted piano noir specifically you know in the 60s and 70s and they were looking for the next great american red wine you know and, and um and they 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 found success earlier because they were um they were using um well, for some for some people, we're using some suitcase clones that came from <laughs> from France that they were planting here, um, and they the, the the climate and the soils and the um, aspects and all of those things were were 
were the right place and the right, you know, the right choice to, to grow Pinot Noir. Um, what happened with Chardonnay, I think, is um, when Chardonnay was first planted in Oregon, um, a lot of the wrong um, clones were planted. They were planting the clones of Chardonnay that were successful in California. Um, the Davis clone four and um, and and some not some some later some clones that actually took longer later ripening clones. Let's just call them. And um, those are really challenging to get ripe consistently ripe, especially if you're looking at planting on high elevations or, um, you know, Oregon has more variability in in, in vintage than California. There's no, there's no getting around that. To me, I find that to be actually a positive thing um, because we have um, it, like, you know, as we talk about further about 18 and 19 vintages, they're drastically different, but great quality wines in both of them. Um, but, but having those differences in vintages, they may be minute differences in the global kind of scheme, but, but in wine style and quality, and and character they 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 make a difference and um i think when you when people first brought in chardonnay into oregon they were planting the wrong plant material that's the bottom line they were planting um vines that were successful in a region that doesn't have the same climate so the big game changer for oregon was right around the early 90s and very very late 80s like maybe 89 88 um, people started bringing in Dijon clones. They were certified from UC Davis and they came into Oregon before they even came into California. And when those were brought in, they were their earlier ripening clones. So they ripen on average, maybe, maybe two weeks before some of these other clones that, that, that were being sourced out of California that were either heritage clones or clones that were certified from Davis, but but primarily from California. So when these came in, they became a game changer for, for Chardonnay um, producers here. Um, our Coat Sued Vineyard has some of the earliest plantings of Dijon clones. They were planted in 1990. Um, I think Adelsheim was the very first one um, to bring to bring them in. And um, they just completely changed everything for Oregon Chardonnay. They, even even if people are planting other clones now, it's based off of what they've learned from the Dijon clones. You know that either either you're planting earlier ripening clones or using early ripening rootstock or something something that's giving you a better chance to get them fully ripe in you know the years like 2011, 2013, even 2010 um, that are cooler. And so I think you know with Pinot Noir. I think there was a general, um, uh, I think the people that came in and started really producing Pinot Noir early um, were such fans of Pinot Noir and really wanted to put it on the map for Oregon that they just did it from like, I mean, they bootstrapped it, honestly. They did it successfully. <laughs> successfully, very successfully. And then so when you have an established, you know, Oregon Pinot Noir and Willamette Valley Pinot Noir was so successful for a good 20 years before Chardonnay really started to come into the frame. So then you have to not only catch up with what um, 
you know, having the right rootstock, the right quality, all of those things. But then you also have to try to find your place within a valley that's so well known for making some of the best Pinot Noir in the world. So there was a few factors there that made it, you know, um, challenging for Chardonnay. But I mean, the it's the proofs in the pudding. The the Chardonnay in 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 the Willamette Valley is is um, it's stunning. It's it you know, it's some of the best in the world. Yeah, for sure. I think. I mean, I'm sure you would agree that there is a lot of potential and room to grow for Chardonnay. Do there is. There's the same for Pinot Noir. I mean, throughout our tastings we've had a pretty high average in quality, um, yeah. but not, not too many at the very, very top. Uh, mm. I don't know if you'd agree with that or why you think that is, and if there's room to produce top, top, top Pinot Noir going forward. I think there's always room for improvement, no matter what you're, no matter what you're doing or where you're coming from. It doesn't matter if you've been growing, you know, grapes for 400 years in the same place, or if you've been growing them for 40 years in the same place. There's always um, there's always room to do better and to learn, you know. And um, you know, you can, as a winemaker and a wine producer, you can work 40 vintages and you might not see two that are the same, you know? And so every year you're consistently learning and taking those learnings and then trying to push to make better wine. So like 2019 vintage, we took a lot of things that we learned in 2011, some things that we learned in 2013, although I wouldn't compare 19 and 13 together because we didn't have the same amount of rain. Um, it was more maybe closely related to like a 2011, but you take all those learnings and you and you take those things and you try to um, you 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 have a, like you have an idea of how that wine's going to evolve in the future, right? So you're already starting from a better place, and you can take all of those things and try to create something um, with a you know a, a a better trajectory from the beginning. Um, Yes, I think, you know, I, I think Oregon can can and, you know, all of us, any producer can always make something better. But I would argue also on the other side that some of the best Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays that I've had in, you know, the last, you know, 10 years are coming from Oregon. And that's what drew me here, you know, and um, and I'm one of the few producers here in this, um, you know, in this valley, there's, there, there's becoming more and more that makes wine in Burgundy and in Oregon. And I can compare year on year and say that, you know, um, quality is absolutely comparable. And in some cases we can make, you know, better wines in Oregon in some years and in, in Burgundy and others. And that's saying something because 20 years ago, I don't know if we would have been able to even say that and not be, you know, laughed out of a room. Great. That was really interesting. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Lots of great insight. And um, yeah, lovely to meet you again. And I hope yeah. when things go back to normal, I hope to be able to come and visit and meet in person. Yeah, we'd love that for sure. It's uh, it's a, uh, it's an open invitation. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. Enjoy your evening. Yeah. Hope you, you enjoyed care. the wines. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.